You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Jawbreaker, Kruger, M.D., Schmarls, Logan, The Knight of Dampier, Pablo, Toves, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our quartermasters, Adam and Birdsong, and our new quartermasters, Anthony, Squishy, James, and Pierce. I'd also like to welcome our other newest patrons, Roanoke, Jonathan, Jesse, Adam, Elijah, Finn, Anthony, and Bobby. And our newest Commodores, Bigbeard, Cannon Monkey, McKay, Nikki, and Ward. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Today we are going to begin one of the great tales in the history of piracy. If I'm being honest, it's a bit daunting. Happily, there are some sources that were either recently released or that I just recently acquired that will help us out here, but there's still a formidable task before us. I struggled even with where to begin this story. There are so many possibilities. We could begin at the Royal Academy in London, among such illustrious names as Sir Isaac Newton. Or we could peer through the bars at the Jamestown Prison circa 1688. We could visit the court of King William III, or we could visit the Governor's Mansion in New York City. Perhaps the best place to begin would be the trading house of one of the most prominent names in American commercial history. Or maybe the island of Madagascar. They're all viable options. They're all places that we will be seeing in this story. But not today. That story is too big for today. I suppose we should start, then, at the beginning. One of those newly released sources I mentioned takes this story all the way back to the Nile Delta, circa 1179 BCE, the invasion of the Sea Peoples. Now, we're not going to go that far back. But instead, we're going to look at the West Country of England, circa 1650, where we will discuss a family named Avery. This is episode 178, Bread to the Sea. 
Before we depart, though, I do want to take a moment to talk about sources. They're significant to this story and the search for historic fact. There isn't a lot of that to be found here. If I were to relate the facts as we know them to be true, this story could end in mere minutes. Now, I'm going to distinguish between the facts and the superstitions and the legend here as best as I can, but the legend is important. Our main character today will become one of the most famous pirates of all time. Today, in modern cultural imagination, he may be overshadowed by Sam Bellamy or Blackbeard, but for centuries this pirate reigned supreme. In fact, Right as Sam Bellamy and Ed Teach were beginning to become aware of the world around them, this pirate suddenly became the most talked-about name in perhaps the whole world. And this pirate was born in a little hamlet just down the road from the birthplaces of both Blackbeard and Black Sam Bellamy. His wife still lived just down the road. It's possible that as young boys they could have met her. It's also possible, although very unlikely, that as teenagers they may have seen a play about this pirate. His name loomed over the world for their entire lives. It's not overstating it to say that at the time, and for many, many years after, he was seen as the most infamous pirate in the world. Until, relatively recently, the only pirates who could come close to matching that amount of notoriety were maybe... Mary Reed and Anne Bonny. So we need to discuss the sources. Sources that played a role in creating this legendary scourge of the Seven Seas. For example, we don't know when this pirate died. Some of the earliest sources about him might have been published when he was still roaming the earth. At least one, the Life and Adventures of Captain John Avery, was likely published in his lifetime. 1709 was the first pressing. Three years later, that play I mentioned, called The Successful Pirate by Charles Johnson, played for four nights in London. It was a farce, and it was a flop, but some of the theatrical invention found therein did make its way into later accounts. Now that playwright, Charles Johnson, should not be confused with Captain Charles Johnson author of A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates, published originally in 1724. However, A General History does begin with the life of Captain Avery. As we've mentioned here before, we don't know who Captain Johnson was. It was probably a pseudonym, but it was assumed for many years to have been Daniel Defoe. Modern literary analysis tells us this probably wasn't the case, but Defoe was much more likely behind the next and most infamous source that we have. This was published as an autobiography. It was a pair of letters from the pirate himself intended to discredit any other works that were out there and to set the record straight. This was, however, entirely a falsehood. Today, this work is called The King of the Pirates, published in 1711. Usually attributed to Daniel Defoe, it's, it's a novella. I mean, this pirate that we're discussing could read and write, but I'd like you to imagine a West Country seafarer from the late 17th century using this kind of language. 
the King of the Pirates reads, quote, In the present account I have taken no notice of my birth, infancy, youth, or any of that part which, as it was the most useless part of years to myself, so it is the most useless to any one that shall read this work to know, being altogether barren of anything remarkable. End quote. But imagine that in the voice of, you know, Hagrid or Long John Silver. Yar, shiver me timbers! In the present account I have taken no notice of my birth. You're a wizardary. It just doesn't add up. So while we will reference the King of the Pirates and discuss some of what it has to say here today, it's not to be trusted. Sadly, a source that is usually trustworthy, one of our greatest sources on this entire era in piracy, is completely silent on this pirate. Even though the author personally knew this most famous of all pirates, William Dampier never once mentions him in any account. If he had, it would clear up a lot of the myth. Now, this pirate is talked about in all of those accounts that follow the publication of Treasure Island in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Most of those, though, are just a rehash of what had already been written. But then we get to the modern histories. Books by authors that have done their due diligence. They compare the early sources to the historical records from church and state organizations to find something resembling what may have actually happened. A ton of my favorite books about the topic of piracy go into the story of Henry Avery, The Pirate's Pact by Douglas Burgess, for example. All of my books about the Pirates of the Round or William Kidd or just the golden age of piracy in general. But two works specifically about this pirate stand out. The King of Pirates by E.T. Fox is amazing. Fox is a stellar historian on the entire topic of Atlantic piracy and does a great job cutting the fat from the story of this pirate and the attempt to find fact. Then there's that new book I mentioned, published here in 2020, and it was a book I couldn't put down. Enemy of All Mankind by Stephen Johnson is a wonderful book. It's wide-ranging and large in scope, and goes into more than just the biography of this pirate. I couldn't recommend it highly enough. All of these sources are going to help us attempt to tell, maybe not the tale, but a tale about the pirate in question. Now, you may have noticed that I avoided naming this pirate, except in titles that named him. See, we don't exactly know what his name was. Was it John Avery? Maybe it was Benjamin Bridgman or Long Ben. In contemporary sources, reports from naval officers and the like, they name him as Avery or Ivory or a host of other variations. He's most famously known probably because of a general history as Henry Avery. And originally I intended to use that name. The family from which he is most often believed to have come goes by Avery. But this pirate signed his name to two documents that have survived to come down to us. One was a letter to his wife, and the other one was his signature upon joining a particular ship's crew. In both cases, he uses the name Henry Avery, 
and with that in mind, I'm going to default to that spelling, unless it's pressing it to use one of his aliases. With all that out of the way, let's travel to the west country of England, in the county Devon. It's the birthplace of a ton of pirates, Sam Bellamy and Blackbeard, as we said, but dozens of lesser names. Captains and quartermasters, regular crewmen that we will meet, as well as two of the grandfathers of English piracy, Sir Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh. What they call the West Country is the southwesternmost corner of England. It commands the English entrance to the Channel, and the mouth of the Thames is found in Devon. And sure, you're going to find farmers and shepherds in Devon, but it is most famously a land of seafarers. A general history reads, and everyone has used this line, quote, He was born in the west of England, near Plymouth, in the county of Devonshire. Being bred to the sea, he served as a mate of a merchantman. End quote. Now we'll dig into that in a moment, but that line, bred to the sea, is found in almost every account of Every's life. You'll see it in writings about Drake and Teach and all of the others, but that's because it was the reality for those born in the West. More than likely, for those growing up in Devonshire, you had a choice of three occupations. Fisherman, merchant sailor, or the Navy. Your father and his father probably shared those exact same options. You were very much bred to the sea. Now, we don't know when Every was born exactly. The testimony of one of his crewmen, much later in this story, will say that he was about 40 in 1695. It was difficult to tell just how old Every was because he wore a wig so often, but that tidbit places his birth somewhere in Devon around 1655. Using that as a guiding light, historians have tracked down what may have been his birth. The parish records from a little hamlet called Newton Ferrers, just southeast of Plymouth, record the birth of a baby boy to John and Anne Avery on 20th August, 1659. From that, we can extrapolate quite a bit about Avery's early life. The Civil War was over by 1659. Cromwell was in charge in England, but Newton Ferrers had been hit particularly hard by the war. The West of England was mostly royalist, but big cities like Plymouth and Exeter were parliamentarian strongholds. And you can see the obvious tactical value of the most important naval region in England. The West of England saw a lot of fighting, Devon in particular. Fully one-third of the population of the county were casualties of the Civil War. There was the conscription and a number of battles, of course, but more than anything else were those pressed into naval service who just never returned. Newton Ferrers was a small town. Around the time of Every's birth, it was home to 125 adult men, with an estimated 100 family units. We could estimate a population of, what, 500 or 600 people? I mean, imagine that 200 of your neighbors, in whatever size city you live in, were lost in less than a decade of fighting. You would feel the effect of that. And in a place like Newton Fairs, where it was such a high percentage of the population, well, that was still hanging over their head long after the war was over. However, 
Much more pressing in Every's youth was the threat of pirates. Not the omnipresent threat of regional rovers from Ireland or Wales or France, they were always a problem, but for a few years when Every was probably about seven or eight years old, Barbary pirates were a clear and present danger. They were something of a national crisis right about the time that Charles II was restored. Ships from Algiers and Tripoli and Saleh were spotted off the coast of Devon two or three times a week. They were searching for any unwary ships they could capture and any people they might be able to carry off to sell into slavery. This was the kind of thing that absolutely would not have been lost on a boy living in Devon. It's likely that the pirates were something of a bedtime story boogeyman for boys his age living in Devon, but one that was real, one that was right out there at sea right now. What really makes the Barbary pirates notable in Henry Avery's life would be his later opinions on topics like slavery and, of course, piracy. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Now, what we know about his family is limited. We could trace the Avery clan back a few generations, but there's not much to glean off that. Instead, though, we do know a bit about John Avery. He served on board a ship in the war, but we don't exactly know which war. It could have been the Civil War or the Thirty Years' War, which is more likely, or even the First Anglo-Dutch War. Some have suggested, though, that the elder Avery served as a privateer in whichever war it happens to be. Which isn't unlikely. 
Securing a commission wasn't difficult, and privateering was a much better option if you owned a ship. We can say with much more confidence, though, that John Avery spent the years following the war in a lucrative business in the liquor trade. Now, we don't know exactly what his role was in that trade. For example, we don't know if, during the Anglo-Dutch War, as a West Indian privateer, he made contacts with whom he traded in the new and very rich trade in rum. But I like to imagine that that's how Avery's father made his money. They didn't get rich exactly, but the Avery family did all right. Henry was educated, in at least enough to keep accounts and to read and write. Which is all we can say for certain, but then there's the legend. The life and adventures of Captain John Avery, which is not trustworthy, tells us about his school years. It tells us his widowed aunt was the local schoolmistress. The author of that work, Adrian von Broek, tells us that his aunt, quote, had the satisfaction of not only seeing him outstrip those of his own years, but those that had been some years before him. But here, as if fate pointed out the grandeur and wealth which he should, unfortunately, arrive at, he gave indications of such daring and commanding genius as made some of his little schoolfellows very uneasy. End quote. We've all heard the story of Napoleon Bonaparte organizing a snowball fight in his school days. A fight that he led masterfully. It's a famous story, a harbinger of the artillery commander to come, but it's probably not true. However, at least that historical fabricator had the decency to come up with a good story. All this does is give us vague mentions of a daring and commanding genius. Now, von Broek was not alone in ascribing early inspirations to Avery's later genius, if you could call his preternatural skill and high crimes, treason, and piracy genius. There are those who suggest that Avery had an education in rhetoric and even a background in theater. It's probably not true, but we can see where stories like that might come from. Later in life, Avery would be possessed of that Difficult to define something that makes the very best pirate captains. Charisma is a big part of it. Somehow, the captains who were in possession of that same difficult to define something managed to rally crews full of violent, mutinous pirates and keep command of them for years. You've got pirates like Bartholomew Sharp and Charles Vane and a hundred other pirates who died before they got famous who didn't have that. But Every also had something that we find in fictional pirates all the time, usually only in the cool, good guy, anti-hero pirates. And actually, that brings up something I want to talk about. Despite how much I'm kind of gushing about Henry Every, despite how much I love this story, and even consider Every among my favorite pirates, he was not a good guy. He was intelligent and charming and handsome and very good at his job. But a lot of people were going to suffer, horrifically, thanks to his actions. Which, of course, could be said of all pirates. There are no good guys in this story. But the pirates who capture the public imagination tend to be those with which we can morally identify. When they're punching above their weight class, you know, taking on the big empires of the world, that we can get behind. 
when we're capturing slave ships and freeing those enslaved on board, that we can get behind. And there are pirates like that in the story of piracy. Henry Every is not one of them. That complicated morality is part of what I really enjoy about pirates. And I think we see it at its most complex in this story of this pirate. However, we're going to dig into that when he commits those acts that are so unquestionable. But beyond his charisma, Henry Avery possessed a truly tactical mind. He had the ability to assess a situation and make quick decisions, and most importantly, he had the ability to say no to a prize when it was right to do so. But more than that, perhaps his greatest strength was the ability to convince a violent pirate crew that they should also abandon that prize when it was right to do so. That's a rare talent, something we only see in a handful of the best pirates. All of which is a lot of words to say that Henry Every was educated and made a surprisingly good manager. Now it's at this point, after discussing his birth and the world into which he was born and his early life and his probable education, that most respectable historians jump forward about 25 years. That's when we catch up reliably to the story of Henry Every. But we aren't going to do that. Instead, we're going to delve into some of those less reputable stories about Henry Every and how they built the myth of this pirate. Today, we're going to discuss the story told to us in that purported autobiography, The King of Pirates, probably by Daniel Defoe. The author writes after, remember, telling us not to worry about Every's youth, quote, and remember, this is in Hagrid's voice, in order to come immediately to my story, I shall, without any circumlocutions, give you leave to tell the world that, being bred to the sea from youth, none of those romantic introductions published had any share in my adventures, or were in any way the cause of my taking the courses I have since been embarked in. End quote. That's the author telling you not to listen to any of the stories so far told about the life of Henry Every. Good advice, including this one. According to this story, after leaving home, Every sailed for the West Indies to serve as a privateer in the Third Anglo-Dutch War. He was, of course, just a little bit late here. The war ended almost as soon as he arrived. As was the case with so many other buccaneers, he was forced to earn a living by logwood cutting in the Bay of Campeche. Now, you may remember I mentioned this way back when, when William Dampier lived this exact story. Sailed for the West Indies to make his fortune as a privateer only for the war to have ended and earn a living at the Bay of Campeche. Daniel Defoe was a big fan of William Dampier. Dampier's book, A New Voyage Around the World, is what inspired Defoe to write Robinson Crusoe. If Daniel Defoe did in fact write The King of Pirates, it's probable he's doing the same thing here. Now, if we chose to believe this account, it would have been possible that Dampier and Every met here in Campeche. But even if they hadn't met in Campeche, they would have, in the narrative of The King of Pirates, met when Every, quote, served first in some of the adventures of Captain Sharp, 
Captain Sawkins and others in their bold adventures in the South Seas, where I got a very good booty. End quote. The author, whomever it might be, is just using the titles of other real histories here. It's almost like they're trying to build some kind of extended fan fiction pirate universe. The author of this account continues, quote, After several adventures in those seas, I was among that party who fought their way, sword in hand, through all the detachments of Spaniards in the journey overland, across the Isthmus of Darien to the North Sea. I, with twelve of our men, by help of a piragua, got into the Bay of Campeche. End quote. There's a lot wrong with that passage. First of all, the group of pirates that fought their way overland through detachments of Spaniards passed through Honduras and El Salvador on their way to the Mosquito Coast. Remember the cavalry units charging down the mountain and the wall of smoke from which the pirates emerged to surprise the Spanish? It was a great story, and true. But that was Ravne de Luzon and his lot later on. The pirates who passed through Darien on their way to the North Sea were Edward Davis and William Dampier and Lionel Wafer and that group. And they didn't fight any Spaniards because there were no Spaniards there. It was Kuna territory. Remember how Lionel Wafer hurt his leg in a river crossing and had to stay with the Kuna? No? Well, you need to remember, for this story, that Lionel Wafer hurt his leg and was forced to stay back with the Kuna. That will play a role here. Now, all of these inaccuracies should be more than enough to convince even the most skeptical that this story is not how it happened. However, if Henry Avery was on this voyage, even if Dampier did meet him, even if they were good friends, there was very good reason, when Dampier published his account, for him to cut any reference to Henry Avery. William Dampier was trying to get his book published in 1696, and in 1696 Henry Avery was someone with whom it was dangerous to be associated. The King of Pirates goes on to tell a tale of Avery and five of his companions marching along the shore after their stay in the Bay of Campeche. They were hiding from Spanish patrols there, and finally they stumbled across a piragua. There they waited for whoever owned the piragua and saw a group of men approaching them down the beach. Quote, when they saw us, not knowing who they were, they were just going to fire at us. I, perceiving it, held up a white flag as high as I could. Upon this they forbore firing. End quote. Those men turned out to be English. Every, according to this narrative, told them about all of their troubles, and that he and his friends were prepared to give up. They were even prepared to surrender to the Spanish. They assumed that this piragua belonged to the Spanish. The Spanish, even if they were arrested, as they certainly would be, would have provided them with at the very least food and a way back to civilization. The Englishmen, though, took Henry Avery and his companions on board their ship, but Avery found out that they were nefarious characters. Quote, they took us into their boat, and afterwards carried us on board their ship. When we came there, we found they were a worse sort of wanderers than ourselves. For though we had been a kind of pirate, known and declared enemies to the Spaniards, yet it was to them only, 
and no other. But now we were listed in the service of the devil indeed, and like him, were at war with all mankind. However, we not only were obliged to sort with them while with them, but in a little time the novelty of the crime wore off, and we grew hardened to it, like the rest. And in this service I spent four years more. Our captain in this pirate ship was named Nichols, but we called him Captain Redhand. A Scots sailor gave him that name when he was not the head of the crew, because he was so bloody a wretch that he scarce ever was at the taking any prize, but he had a hand in some butchery or other. End quote. Now that's pure fiction, but that's the kind of fiction I can get behind. Then it gets even more ridiculous, though. After a few weeks serving with these pirates, Red Hand takes Henry Every into his cabin and into his personal council. He declared that Every was at heart a captain, just without a ship to call his own, a state of affairs that Captain Red Hand intended to rectify. Off the coast of Cuba, Captain Red Hand and Every met with a 40-gun Spanish galleon. Even though their little pirate ship was small, the pirates engaged her and fought a stout fight. The Spanish captain, after trading volleys for the better part of a day, cried for quarter. They took this galleon, but upon inspection she just wouldn't do. She rode too deeply in the water. She was too fat, too slow, not a good pirate ship. Instead, they took all of her guns and indigo and muskets and chests of silver and barrels of rum. None of this happened. The Spanish, when things like this actually did occur, were always up in arms about it. We have their accounts of all the piracy going on here in the 1680s, and there's no account of this ship being taken by any pirate, especially one named Red Hand. It was a fiction as were the next few prizes they claim in this narrative. And that includes the crowning jewel of Every's early career. The King of Pirates gives us a full-throttle, dashing account of how Henry Every acquired his own ship, the Fancy. It's a fine story. It's, it's a fun story. But I'm not going to share it with you because that's all it is. A story. And we know how Henry Every came into possession of the fancy. And the reality makes a much better tale. But that story is going to have to wait. We're going to leave it there today. Next time, we are not going to continue on with the arch-pirate Henry Every. After all, Henry Every is only one in a group of pirates who will form this nucleus of captains who will become the driving force behind what is known as the Pirates of the Round. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews wherever it is you listen to the show, and everyone who has recommended this show to your friends and family. You all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always... The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you really should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. 
as always, most importantly, thank you for listening.